In old school games where life is cheap, don't be a dope, grab your pole or the rope, or else you might go down in a heap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful northeast Minneapolis. But yes, they are icy wastes. Uh, we had a snowstorm, I don't know, it was a week or two ago, maybe? I can't remember, but at the time, they were doing the uh, total snowfall for the season kind of comparisons, and in early January, or mid-January, we have already had uh, the amount of snow that we typically have in the entire winter season, going through March, sometimes early April, and we're going to get more snow today. Just a dusting, I've been told. But these nuisance snowfalls are almost worse than uh, getting dumped on sometimes. You just have to go out there and run your shovel over the driveway and sidewalks or else it'll get tramped down and then turn to ice. It's been really mild this winter. We haven't had much bitter cold. But I've gotten to the point where I'd almost rather have the bitter cold than the dumb snow and the continual melting and refreezing and uh and shoveling and driving issues and all that so well that's enough uh moaning about the the weather um at the top of the show we heard rotten free thrall the lead singer of the bx pistols doing his version of my theme song so thanks there spencer uh from keep off the borderlands podcast i appreciate it very cool stuff. Today, it's going to be wrapping up the character book from uh, Old School Essentials Advanced Fantasy, looking at the some of the options that uh, probably make it, if you go with some of these, make it the class structure, the demi-human and multi-class options. This is probably going to make it feel more like AD&D first edition, if that's really what you uh, would prefer having the feel be uh, of uh, like a BX chassis, but capturing more of an AD&D feel. So, but before we get to that, uh, we've got a couple calls, one from Jason and then a, from Nerds RPG Variety Cast and then a couple from Daniel from Bandit's Keep. So let's go. All right, let's shake it. Hey, Rob, Jason here. Really enjoyed your deep dive number three. Yeah, I mean, there's no question Gavin has done a great job adapting these different classes to OSE. And, yeah, he's got to depower a lot of them. I, I don't know how much I'm worried about balance, as this appears to be, trying to balance things out. But I think he's done a really good job here, and some of them are really interesting. Like, say, the half-elf is an interesting option that doesn't appear in AD&D at all, right? And, and some of these other adaptations he's done are interesting. I, But as, as you kind of mentioned at the end and, and kind of hint at throughout, you know, this is ripe for designer notes. It would be great to have designer notes in here, and I wish more designers would do designer notes. And, you know, the way PDFs work with the multi-layers, you could easily insert designer notes, hey, this is what I did and all, and put it on a different layer, and so people who don't care about designer notes would never even see them. 
but they'd be there kind of as an Easter egg for people who love designer notes. And I, cause I would love to hear, you, you know, a, a deep dive into the thinking behind a lot of this. Uh, but it is really interesting and I am looking forward to your next section. So take care, keep up the great work. Talk to you soon. Hey Jason, thanks for the call. I appreciate it as always. I I usually don't get too whipped up about balance the way a lot of people talk about balance when they're talking about like balanced encounters as far as the opposition of the monsters matching up with the relative power level of the player character group. That I don't really give two craps about unless the party is always always beaten down and never has a chance that would be really old and i think the game would end really quickly as the <laughs> the players would would get tired of that pretty damn quick if all their uh their planning all their reconnaissance um all their uh cautious or ingenious methods still never really mattered because the monsters were always just so powerful in comparison to them. That game would end really quickly with a with a, a very uh, bored DM because he'd be looking across the screen and seeing no one who wanted to play with them. But uh, the balance that does kind of uh, interest me, or at least... I think is worthwhile in pursuing is the idea of no one character class being clearly superior to another class and especially within its own kind of role in a party because most of the classes have relative worth in very specific situations. A thief is not, uh, up to snuff in a straight-up toe-to-toe fight compared to a fighter or even a cleric. Uh, but they have their role in the party, and if they get, if they can surprise someone, then they can deal out a lot, a lot of damage with their backstab, etc. And of course, the whole magic user with their spells. But if you have a subclass of fighter that makes the fighter basically a consolation prize or something that. You know, why would I choose a fighter when I can be a ranger or a barbarian or a paladin or a knight or whatever? Then I think you're kind of like, well, why even have the fighter? Why, why do you even offer this? In AD&D, the way it was set up, it, it was kind of a consolation prize because they had these really high minimum attributes to get to, to qualify for being a lot of these fighter subclasses. And then if a lot of the demi-human options couldn't be, say, a ranger, and none of them could be a paladin, and I think only a half-elf could be a cavalier, none of them could be a, a barbarian. So you might choose to be a, a fighter if, you're, if you wanted to play a dwarf, for instance, or if you wanted to play an elf. Uh, but, but if you're a human, there was no real reason to choose a fighter unless you just rolled crappy or not sufficient ability scores to qualify for a ranger or a paladin or a barbarian or whatever. So you had this kind of situation where not only 
worthy attributes, high attributes, or reward in themselves, but, but they unlocked these even more powerful subclasses. So it became almost like stacking, like, yep, my character is Uberman, plus I get to qualify for this much better character class. So I kind of, I do prefer games where the classes and their relative power are somewhat balanced, and when they have a, a purpose in the party that isn't supplanted by another class, that's just like, you know, like a monk in AD&D, shove the thief out of the way, I can do all your thiefy crap, plus I can do all this other stuff, um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, uh, it makes uh, some classes just, and I think, uh, I mean, Gavin in his foreword was talking about wanting to avoid some of these situations in what he was creating in uh, old school edition, or old school essentials advanced fantasy. He didn't want to have that situation where there was the, the niche protection kind of things that were pushed aside, and there, and he didn't want to have character classes that were clearly superior to others. Now, how successful he was in that, hmm, I think it's much more that way than AD&D is. I think uh, the classes are more balanced than they are in AD&D, but there's still some that are clearly, the fighter being the prime example is the, is the, the weakling of the, of the bunch. But I agree wholeheartedly with you that designer notes are something that I would love to see, not only for old school essentials, but for many other games. I like, I'd love to hear the reasoning behind some of the design choices, especially in these retro clones and, um, and takes on D&D where there's, you know, that's what makes something like Swords and Wizardry different from basic fantasy or role-playing game from Old School Essentials from Labyrinth Lore. They're all really similar, but there's these subtle differences, and I'd love to hear the reasoning behind the choices of those subtle differences. Like, for instance, in Old School Essentials with these new classes, how did you arrive at this, this uh, experience point progression? How did you arrive at the, you know, deciding, I'm going to make the gnome kind of like a halfling, kind of like a elf, kind of like a dwarf. It's going to be this hooch blender. I mean, that I thought that was a pretty cool idea, but at the same time, it's like, well, when you're talking niche protection too, it's, uh, you're kind of stepping on the toes of some of those other classes as well by doing it. So yeah, I, uh, Swords and Wizardry Complete, Matt Finch has a little bit of a kind of design note element in sections, which I thought was really cool. I'd love to see it more. I don't know if it's page count considerations with, with some of the, uh, you know, uh, actual books, the physical, <laughs> that's the word I was looking for, the physical copy kind of things. But as you point out, in a PDF, there's no reason why you couldn't have a section of design notes. Um, I, <laughs> I put, like, little design notes, and even my house rules, I'll put, like, kind of a rationale for why I chose to do things. 
as kind of a almost a way to start out a conversation or to potentially answer questions that some of the players might have and stuff. But yeah, some of the old war games when they had designer notes, oh man, I love that. Loved it. All right, I'll move on now to some calls from Daniel at Bandit's Keep. Hey up, Daniel from Bandit's Keep calling in. Uh, catching up now on the deep dive, I'm on episode three. These are great. Um, I'm really, really enjoying it. The classes are super interesting, and, and I do I do think that Gavin did a good job trying to make them more BX-ish. I still feel like all these additional species and stuff are just way more powerful than the previous ones. I, you know, so, you know, unless you're just going to limit them in your game. Like, I just don't know why you wouldn't just say when somebody says they want to play a draw, you wouldn't just be like, okay, you're an elf. I mean, I just, I just don't get the extra stuff, but that's just me. And I, I know people like to have these intricate classes. It seemed like the gnome was really powerful. I gotta go back and look at that again, because that, that just seemed super powerful. And uh, I guess we're up to the night now, but I had to stop driving, so I haven't listened to what you say about the night, but... So far, it seems pretty cool. I could totally see, I'm with you, the half-orc seems kind of interesting. You know, I, I do wonder, like, how you would use that. Like, I was actually thinking as you were talking about the half-elf that it would be cool to actually run a campaign where there was no straight-up demi-humans and you basically had half-elves and maybe half-orcs and they weren't so much, like, first-generation, if you will, but it's like it was in their, you know, in their lineage that there was orcish or in their lineage that it was elvish. And maybe it only shows up marginally, uh, you know, in the, the way they look, but they get some different abilities from it. And, and, you know, people can tell, you know, oh, they're from over there. They're the half elves or whatever. So you can still play up that kind of, you know, dragon lance vibe, <laughs> but not have like the full elves there as well. So that could be kind of interesting. I think the half elf of everything you've read is probably the one I'd be and half orc are the most likely that I'd want to use. Also, I think it was Joe called in. Um, earlier, again, I've been running around here, so I wasn't making notes for myself, but, and mentioned that, you know, expert is like overland travel. And he also mentioned, you know, urban. And I think that some of these classes would be very good for urban. Like I could totally see the half orc being great for urban stuff. The bard again would be better for urban than, than the, than the dungeon per se, probably, possibly even the, the gnome. I don't know. I'd have to go back and listen to it again, but, or read it. But it seems like some of them would just be really good for kind of urban slash city type adventures. So if you want to play like a, a Fawford Grey Mouse or, you know, kind of they spend a lot of time in the big city, but then also go off on adventures. I think those could be really cool. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying this. And I'm curious now about the illusion spells, too, because, again, like why I seem to remember from AD&D, and I could be wrong about this, that illusionists got like two spells at first level and they had a couple of really powerful spells like hypnotic pattern or so or maybe it was uh, hypnosis or something like that that they got at an early level that was kind of like a area effect almost charm person vibe so i remember illusionist being pretty darn powerful in AD&D, but like most things hard to qualify for anyways that's my message and i'll go back to listen here up daniel again finished up the uh the third episode there of the deep dive very very cool yeah the knights huh I don't know, you know, in, in AD&D, I remember loving the Cavalier, but I also think we played when that Unearthed Arcana came out, we played like a, a mini campaign, if you want to call it that, probably a bunch of, just a bunch of games, basically, where we all played like King Arthur style knights of the round table kind of vibe. And I think in that circumstance, then the Cavalier makes sense, right? Because everybody's just a knight in shining armor. And I think they made the Paladin a subclass of it at that point too. 
On the Paladin, I mean, I don't know. You know, I'm always torn about Paladins. I don't have as much problem with the Paladin being the goody-goody-lawful as I do that it just inserts a bunch of healing magic into the game that I just don't think is necessary. For me, a Paladin should not be casting spells. I think they're a holy knight. Maybe give them some kind of protection from evil or, you know, maybe not the protection from evil spell, but and detection of evil or something like that. Or, you know, it to me makes way more sense than healing. But again, that's me. And I think that's one of the great things about the game, right? I love to see what Gavin did with this, to see where he clearly took what was popular and what people were doing and then mixed it in to create something that seems to be at least as much as possible balanced with BX. But again, you got all the way to the end there. And I, and I would say that if I had the OSC Advanced books and I was using it, I don't see anybody really playing any of the other classes unless you just don't allow, <laughs> you know, these classes. Because, you know, again, the Drow is better than the Elf, from what I could tell. And all the other things are better than the other classes. So unless you just really love a different class, you know, why would you play a, uh, a regular dwarf when you could play a deep dwarf or whatever and that has more powers? And so, yeah, I just, again, but I think that's just the nature of advanced. And it's really cool. I think you're just playing a different game at that point. In fact, I almost think as I'm brainstorming here that if you were playing an advanced game, it would be almost be interesting to rewrite the regular, you know, the original BX classes into the advanced format giving them a little bit more oomph so that they're actually compatible with the new classes. Huh. Maybe that's something I'll work on. Probably not, though. But thanks for this. It's really great. Uh, can't wait till the next one. Hey, thanks for the calls, Daniel. I appreciate it. Glad you're enjoying the uh, little deep dive here. I, I hear what you're saying about a lot of this stuff. I don't, I don't know if I necessarily agree with the relative power level being vastly superior on some of these things. I do definitely notice it with the uh, the fighter subclasses versus the fighter. But that was already kind of baked in in the original BX game with the dwarf being clearly superior to the fighter. Uh, I, I do agree that you could just easily, rather than having a separate drow class, just say that you, yeah, just play an elf <laughs> and say that you're you're from the underground or whatever. Um, but I don't think the dro the draw as, as Gavin lays it out, is really better than the elf. It's essentially the same class, uh, the same level progression, the same hit die, all that stuff. The draw basically gets uh, a little bit better infravision, 90 feet versus 60, but they pay for that with a light sensitivity thing. They get the spider affinity so they can speak the sp secret language of spiders and get plus one on reactions. But, I mean, that's to one type of creature that you can encounter. Could be pretty useful, but um, I don't think it's all that game-breaking. They get plus two on their saves uh, versus magic or spells, I should say. So that's better than the elf. But they kind of pay for all that by having the cleric spell list rather than the magic user spell list. And I think I think the magic user spell list for the most part is not only are there a lot more spells, but I think they tend to have more powerful spells or at least a wider variety of options than the cleric list. So yeah, I think they're pretty pretty close. Um, if, and I'd actually, I mean, I'd rather play an elf maybe just because I like magic users better than clerics, but, um, 
the Durgar and the Dwarf, um, I mean, yeah, the Durgar has all those mind powers and stuff, but they do have a D6 versus a, a D8 hit die, so they're kind of giving up a little bit of their uh, fighting prowess and stuff for that. And they ha- they do have a, a slightly more punishing experience point progression than the straight dwarf. So, um, but really, all in all, what what this comes down to is, I think the the design choice of Gavin wanting this to be capturing all the different options, with the exception of the monk, <laughs> that were available in AD and D, and converting them to uh, the game system of BX, or Old School Essentials Classic Fantasy. So that was kind of the design choice. It's an interesting design choice, because while I think a lot of his customers, it would be, I mean, he knows his customer base, right? I don't. But I, from what I can tell, it seems like it's kind of split 50-50 between people that like you and I and Jason grew up playing these games, playing BX, playing AD&D, and wanting a taste of AD&D in the BX format or whatever. Uh, But then there's a lot of just new gamers, too, that have uh, discovered OSE, and they never really played the, the older editions. Or maybe they played some of the other OSR retro clones or something and have moved on to this because they prefer its format and layout and, um, and all that. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of interesting because I think it, in many ways, while I appreciate this approach of, of folding in all the AD and D stuff into a BX chassis, in some ways I would have almost liked it more if he had done a different take on all these classes. Like, to me, the Castles and Crusades version of the knight, version of the bard, version of the monk are a lot more interesting than the ones that are in the AD&D Player's Handbook or in Arnold Arcana. So I would have, you know, those having those different takes, to me, would have been more interesting. I've actually thought about, um, after doing the deep dive and a future topic being looking at the old Bard Games supplements and incorporating, you know, how you could modify some of those from the complete adventurer and the complete spellcaster as, like, BX options or something. Because I think there were some kind of interesting class ideas in there, maybe that were more... uh, that differentiated more from the, the base classes than the AD&D classes really did, um, or at least seemed more um, more than just like, oh, we're going to base the ranger on one literary character. Um, so it was more capturing an archetype like the spy or the hunter or the bounty hunter, the swordsman, you know, like the swashbuckler kind of thing. So the Beastmaster, I think those were all, I mean, I guess Beastmaster is kind of like Tarzan, but but there's other, I think, literary, well, I don't know, whatever. I just think that would have been a, a more interesting approach. But it seems like Gavin has chosen to make 
old school essentials advanced fantasy capturing all the stuff from AD&D and it's in the carcass crawler zine where he's providing all these different kind of takes or options or whatever that you could employ um yeah the gnome i think is of all the classes the most overpowered one that i've seen in the that i that i see in the advanced fantasy um character options <laughs> maybe it should come as no surprise that a company named necrotic gnome would uh, heap <laughs> favors upon the gnome character class uh and yeah the i think the ca- the knight the cavalier would be a fun kind of thing to to base a campaign around um like having a, a knights of the round table kind of game a like a pen dragon kind of game in with using AD&D rules or whatever. Um, yeah, I think that would, that could potentially be a pretty fun game, uh, where all, all your characters are in the same order of knights or serving the same, uh, country or liege or whatever. Maybe you all have a manor houses in the same barony and you're trying to protect it from, you know, from monstrous incursions or uh, uh, an aggressive neighbor or something. Yeah, that I think that could be a really fun game. Um, I just don't know, like, as it's laid out, does it warrant a separate character class? Eh, I, I don't think so. Um, and the Paladin, I I actually like the approach that OD&D took more than any of the others, where you're just a fighter that takes on yeah, that makes th- this vow of, and becomes a paladin. You know, almost enters like this holy compact with uh, with their deity or something and gets a, some bennies for it. If if you did that, if you just made it like a fighter that had, you know, the, the restrictions like the vow of poverty or whatever and humility and all that, and, and in return... Got plus two on their saving throws and could turn undead like a paladin um, and maybe was immune to disease or something um, and and then paid for it with a slightly higher uh, experience point progression. You know, they advanced as magic users instead of fighters once they've uh, entered the, the role of a paladin or something. Rather than having it as a, a class you start out with, um, having it more as a a class you grow into through the actions of your character, I think that would be a more interesting character class or, you know, option. And maybe a knight should be that way too. Um, you start out as a fighter and you, you know, earn a knighthood and enter an old, old order of knights or are knighted by uh, a noble or some religious institution or something and and then took on this chivalric code or something i don't know it's it either way works um but um yeah and i'd be interested to hear like um how you'd modify some of the original classes that's kind of the approach i took with my house rules is just like giving the fighter a few things plus one to hit and getting an extra attack if they roll a 20, you know, to make them better at fighting than their, their fighter subclasses, you know, but it's not, 
something that's earth-shattering. It's not something complicated. It just makes them, it makes a player think, oh, well, these are pretty useful things. Maybe just the straight fighter is a pretty good option, or at least a viable option, rather than, I'll play the dwarf. So, um, yeah, that's the approach I've taken. All right, that's it for the calls. I've blabbered on long enough. Now let's uh, wrap up the rest of the 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 book, the character book for old school adventure, uh, old school essentials, advanced fantasy. The next section in the book, uh, titled "Character Races" and in parentheses "Optional Rule," is where Gavin gets into exploring the idea of having a separate class and race like you do in almost every version of D&D. It was kind of a peculiarity to basic to have these demi-human classes. And he says at the beginning of this book that there's no reason why you couldn't employ both things or you couldn't have in the same party someone who's a dwarf and another per- another player is running a half-elf thief or an elven magic user, or uh, a half or a, a half elf druid, or something. So, yeah, that would work, I guess. I think it would be a little bit awkward to offer both things. I'd be more inclined to choose one or the other, and <clears throat> having the separate species and class where you had the option of choosing both uh, could turn the dial on on these things. I think is a much more AD&D type of feel. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I need to take another sip of coffee. And if uh, AD&D is your jam and that's what you're going for, that's probably what you're going to lean into. For the vast majority of my game life, that's the type of play that I preferred. I, I never really, as a kid, liked the idea of the BX dwarf, elf, and halfling and stuff, but... Uh, as I've come back to it, I've grown to prefer that because I think with the with the demi-human classes, the choice is that you're going to be you want to play a demi-human. It's not that you want to choose some species that will give you an extra edge as a cleric or an extra edge as a fighter. I mean, there are prob- I'm sure there are some players that that's not really the reason they're choosing it, but I think they're in the vast majority, minority. I think most people are looking at it totally from a min-maxing point of view. And they're trying to build the, per- the perfect character. So, um, this clearly is inspired by the original AD&D rules. Um, the, the level, there are level caps uh, for most, well, I think for all of the uh, different demi-humans, and there are uh, limitations on the choice of class. So, for instance, halflings can only choose to be druids, fighters, and thieves, whereas elves have a plethora of options, and I think half-elves maybe can be anything. Um, And those uh, class access uh, limitations and the level caps are for the most part, very similar to what you'd find in AD&D. So, no real surprises there. Gavin does acknowledge that many groups uh, do not enforce that, that that was something that fell by the wayside 
with many groups and they just say, oh, if you want to be a dwarf magic user, go ahead. Or, oh crap, your halfling fighter is now is can only go to fifth level and the rest of the campaign's still going and you want to keep playing that character. Ah, who cares? We'll just keep allowing you to go up and level. If he if you do choose that kind of carte blanche approach, then he did include some rules or some advantages that humans get so that there'd still be a reason for you to choose a human because you know if you if you did waive all that stuff why would you play a human unless it's played up in the setting that humans are the default species that you run into and you have inherent advantages because of those different social aspects of the game or something um, so yeah it's 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 pretty straightforward. Um, you do have the various dem demi-humans uh, often have a minimum requirement in their attribute, and they'll also, so they'll have to satisfy that and satisfy any minimum requirement for the class that they're choosing. Uh, they have ability score modifiers, which pretty much mirror what they were in AD&D. The one thing of note is some of the uh, demi-human class features that you'd find uh, are removed when you're separating the race's class. So, for instance, uh, the drow, if you, if you choose to be a drow character, you don't get that spider affinity. And there's nothing in here about getting, like, a plus two on saves versus spells. So you lose that, but you gain innate magic. So in, in the old uh, Unearthed Arcana, Drow got additional spells like Fairy Fire and Darkness, and then they got some more at 4th level, and then if you were a female Drow character, you got other spells. Well, here it's just at 2nd level, any Drow character can cast Darkness once per day, and at 4th level, detect magic once per day once per day. The Durgar, for instance, lose all their mental uh, abilities. They're you know, like invisibility, and, uh, shrinking, enlarging, all that stuff. Um, the <clears throat> the kind of hardy demi-humans who have better saving throws, the halflings and dwarves, Durgar, gnomes and stuff, like AD&D, have a bonus on poison and magic wands and spells uh, in relation to what their constitution score is. They call it, uh, Gavin calls it resilience. So you'll find that in all those classes. Uh, halflings like lose their ability to, to hide in natural surroundings. They lose that class feature by, by choosing a separate class and uh, the halfling demi-human species so yeah there's little things like that that gnome does too um it's it's pretty interesting stuff so the i'll just point out the human uh if you choose to be a human uh, and and you're disregarding the level limits and class access limits for the demi-humans what gavin suggests you do is give humans plus one on charisma and constitution 
that they have the feature of being blessed when rolling hit points, including first level, the player of a human PC may roll twice and take the best result, decisiveness when initiative roll is tied, humans act first as if they won initiative, or if using the individual initiative rule they get plus one bonus, and leadership, all of the humans, retainers, and hirelings gain a plus one bonus to loyalty and morale. So those are pretty good, you know, features and stand up with what the other um, demi-humans kind of offer. I mean, it's not infravision, but it's, uh, those are pretty good things. One thing that isn't picked up on that was part of AD&D is if you're a thief, um, well, none of them are unlimited in advancement in thief like they were in AD&D, but there's also no adjustments based on species for the various thieving abilities. In AD&D, like dwarves were uh, really good with traps and locks and mechanical things, but couldn't really climb very well. Elves and halflings got bonuses to sneaking and hiding and stuff. Um, none of that's present, so there you go. But if you want to capture that more AD&D separating these two, the class and the, the species choice, these rules uh, uh, adapt them to BX very well. Next up is Poison, and this is not labeled as an optional rule, so this is what Gavin is suggesting that you use for poisons that uh, uh, are available for purchase and might be in the hands of assassins or black markets. And this is set up really similar to the AD&D <laughs> poisons as well, uh, almost identical. They s separate poison into two categories, either bloodstream poisons, uh, where it's, uh, where the poison enters or affects you th via, like, a weapon or some kind of, something that pierces the skin, or ingested, where you actually are, and the poison's mixed in with something that you're eating or drinking or something, and they're divided up into various types, so type one, two, three, four for bloodstream, one through five for ingested. And each poison has a cost, a like so how much you'd have to spend to, to purchase a dose of this. A save modifier, so the typically the higher the type, it's not only more expensive, but the save modifier um, goes down. So a type one poison, you get plus six on your save. So it's, uh, you know, not very well. It's still probably a decent chance to affect you, but uh, a low-level character at least. But uh, if it's like a dwarf or a, a halfling, it's not very likely. The chance of detection, so the chance that you'd actually notice it in your food or something. There's a, like a smell or a, an appearance, uh, a taste if you took a little, you know, a nibble of it or, or something. An onset time. So how long it, uh, it takes from when the poison is first introduced until you would be taking uh, effects from the poison. And then what the effects of the poison are. In, in most cases, it's hit point damage, but at the upper levels, it's death. And if you save, uh, how that's mitigated. For bloodstream poison... 
if you save, you suffer no effect on all of them. For the ingested poisons, even if you save, you're you're typically taking half damage. And for those that where it's where it's death, you're still taking a, a lot of damage. Um, so these are yeah these are um, I think pretty good rules. I liked. Uh, there was an old article, I think, by Larry Dottillo in Dragon Magazine uh, that had all these different poisons with special properties, uh, effects, how they could be noticed, like, oh, it smells like cherry blossoms, or it smells like uh, rotting flesh or something, you know, and what it, what its appearance was, so, like, if it was something that you'd coat your weapon with, like, it was some kind of jelly or something, or oily or whatever, I thought those were, were really cool, um, kind of campaign building blocks. It just added a lot of flavor, but this isn't a very good generic system. One thing I noted is the save modifiers, um, yeah, are, are quite high, uh, plus six all the way down to plus three, so they're, they're higher than they were in the DMG, and I think what I figured out is that because one of the class features of the assassin is that when they use poison, uh, the victim suffers minus two on their save, that's almost exactly what is accounting for here. So um, in the hands of an assassin, the save modifiers are what they were in the DMG, uh, if anyone else uses the poison, then it's then it's uh, they have a better chance. So it's kind of built in there for uh, you know, yeah the assassin accounting for the assassin class feature. Can it help fight the sorcerers? And then the rest of the book, uh, there's a few pages here are advanced rules. These are optional rules that uh, can be added to your BX game to add some depth uh, to areas that weren't really covered or, or uh, delved into very deeply in BX, but that AD&D kind of clarified or provided rules for, and these are kind of taking those topics and fooling them into BX. So what are they? There is limits on turning undead. This... Uh, provides a little bit more insight into how hand, handling turning undead is in BX because it's a little bit vague. Um, so frequency, each character capable of turning the undead may make one attempt per encounter. However, for mixed groups of undead, um, uh, with you know multiple types of undead, a character who makes a successful turning attempt may optionally make another attempt in the following round. This process may be repeated until all types of undead have been affected or a turning attempt fails. So you can keep going until you burn out. So that, that way if there's a, you know, a white with skeletons and zombies, you can keep you know, trying to turn first the skeletons and the zombies and then the white and if you fail somewhere along the line, that's it. You can't make any more turning attempts in that encounter. And that the that clarifies that the duration uh, is one turn for any kind of undead that have been turned. Uh, then magic users and staves. This basically just says if you're a magic user or an illusionist, you can use a staff in addition to a dagger. Combat. Attacking with two weapons. Uh, 
This is very much like in uh, AD&D, but Gavin, I thought this was kind of a clever adaptation. He limits the option to characters with either dex or strength as a prime requisite. So if you're a cleric or a druid or a magic user, yeah, you have you have intelligence or wisdom as a prime requisite uh, or, or charisma. You can't do it. Uh, the secondary weapon must be of small size, so a dagger or hand axe. I think that's how it was in AD&D. Attacks with the primary weapons, your main, your 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 dominant hand uh, are at minus two, and with the secondary weapon are minus four. There is no mitigating uh, with dexterity bonuses like there there was in AD and D. Charging into melee is pretty much identical to how it was in AD and D, from what I can tell. You have to move at least. 20 feet or 20 yards in the wilderness, and it must be a clear path. Um, you get plus two on your attack. Your AC is penalized by one, and you could have uh, weapons braced, set to charge, um, affecting you just like uh, a monster with a charge attack. Uh, missile attacks on targets in melee. This is pretty simple. just says that every creature involved in the melee has an equal chance to be hit. If you fire an arrow or throw it, toss a dagger into a swirling melee, you don't know who you're going to hit. And a note that especially large creatures may count as two or more characters when determining the, the probability. Um, yeah, that that works. This works. Um, it's, I think, much better than just saying you can't do it or that it automatically, you can just, like... Uh, like Legolas in the, in the Lord of the Rings movies, <clears throat> you always choose the right target. Uh, pairing. Characters with a strength of 13 or more may opt to act purely defensively in melee, forfeiting their attack that round, and when pairing, the character's strength bonus to melee attacks is applied to an armor class bonus instead. Alright, that's pretty good. Uh, splash Weapons just has uh, rules for targeting a surface... Uh, with like uh, flaming oil or holy water or acid, and if you miss determining a direction where the where the uh, the vial like breaks instead, rolling a d12 and using that as the uh, a clock face direction, the container smashes five feet from the intended target in that specified direction, and any creature within five feet of that uh, impact can be harmed if the liquid is harmful to them and suffers a, a d2 of damage um next up limiting limits on returning from death there's a maximum number of times that you can be restored to life with a raised dead spell a chance of being successfully raised based upon your constitution and that you lose a point of constitution every time you are brought back from death with a raised dead spell. Pretty much what it was in AD&D. This one is a biggie, and I think is something I would never play BX without. Spellbooks and learning spells. So in BX, rules is written, magic users and elves can only have an amount of spells in their spellbooks, that's identical to the amount of spell slots that they have at each level. So if you're a, a third level magic user, you'd only know 
two first level spells and one second level spell, and you couldn't gain any more spells in your spellbook until you go up in level. Um, that's especially harsh when utility spells like read magic, which you need to ever cast a scroll, um, when that counts against your limit. Um, I, I think that's just kind of pretty, I'll just say it, ridiculous. Um, so this uh, instead states that you can um, basically have any number of spells in your spell book um, and that your beginning spells um, are determined by their intelligence score. And there's a table here. Uh, if, you, <laughs> if you have a three or up to a five intelligence, you only start with one spell. If you have six to nine, you can start with two spells. 10 to 14 intelligence, you have 3. 15 to 17, you start with 4. And if you have that 18 intelligence, you start with 5 spells. Uh, and then there's a procedure for adding spells. May, you may attempt to add spells to their spellbook by copying spells from another source, for example, scrolls or the spellbooks of another caster. Uh, the chance of being able to copy spells based depends on your the character's intelligence score. If the roll fails, the character can never learn the spell. And the chance of copying the spell, yeah, goes from 20% if your intelligence is 3, all the way up to 90% if your intelligence is 18. The normal rules for reading scrolls and spellbooks apply, so you need to use a, a read magic spell, etc. It is not possible to copy spells of a level higher than the character can cast. So if you come across a scroll with fireball, and you're that third-level magic user, you don't have the ability to cast a third-level spell yet, so you can use it off a scroll, but you can't copy it into your spell book until you're fifth level. So, I think these are pretty good rules. Uh, next up, multi-classing. Uh, Gavin is, I think, outlines a pretty solid system here, um, and he does provide some, some guidance. Um, he says allowing multiple multiple classes to be chosen greatly increases the complexity of the character creation process. Single class characters tend to be overwhelmed by characters with multiple classes who can do everything they can and more. Single class characters advance more quickly, but the exponential nature of the class experience point tables means that they are rarely more than one level ahead. In the traditional advanced rules, only demi-humans were allowed to choose multiple classes, and then only in specific combinations. The referee may consider creating combinations of allowed classes, emphasizing the different cultures of the various demi-human races. So you can choose up to three classes, which are selected at character creation. Uh, you track experience points separately for each of those classes, um, dividing your your total earned in a in a session by the amount of classes that you have, and it's equally distributed. Um, your prime requisite experience point for high ability scores only apply to the ones earned in that class. Uh, when you get hit points, uh, like so, if you're a fighter thief and you advance in thief before you advance in fighter, you'd roll a d4 your your thief hit die divided by the amount of classes that you have, and that's how many hit points you gain. You do retain fractions. They exist out there nebulously, but until the sum of various hit die rolls 
equals a whole number, they don't apply. So if you rolled a three on a d4 for a, a character with two classes, you get one and a half hit points, but for now you only get one hit point, but in subsequent level gains, uh, if you get another half hit point, you uh, remove those fractions and add a hit point. Clear as mud. All right, you use the best saving throws in um, uh, FACO tables. Use the best armor allowed, best weapons allowed. If spell casting is allowed, you can use them without. Re you can use the spells without restrictions. So, if you're a fighter magic user, yeah, you can wear armor and cast spells. For for stealth skills, class abilities such as hide and shadows and move, move silently may be only be used when wearing armor that is allowed to the class that grants the ability. So that means that if you're a fighter thief, the thief is the class that grants the ability to hide in shadows, move silently, and a thief is limited to leather armor, which means, and no shield, which means you can only wear leather armor and no shield when you're choosing that or attempting to do that. Uh, secondary skills. This is like the old DMG. You'd roll uh, percentile dice to see what kind of uh, skill or craft or something that you had before you became an adventurer. Um, the one difference here is there is no category of no skill of measurable worth. You always get something. Mm, that's alright. No big deal. And there are a number of things added to that list. It's not um, I, it's greatly expanded from what was in the DMG, so that's kind of cool. And he gives some notes on just using, how you go about using these secondary skills. You're not, um, uh, under no circumstance can a character following the life of an adventurer match the skill level of someone dedicated to a profession. So you are kind of a novice in your, your, uh, with your secondary skill. And last, the whole idea of weapon proficiency. Um, you know, in, in BX, if you're, if you're a fighter, you can use any weapon. There, you know, there's no, like, choosing, I'm proficient in these weapons. Um, if you're a thief, there's no choosing, you're just, you can use any weapon. If you're a cleric, you can use any blunt weapon. If you're a magic user, you can only use a dagger. Well, in this, uh, it, it covers, like in AD&D, uh, you get a certain amount of weapons, that you are proficient with at first level and you gain more proficiencies as you advance in level. If you pick up a weapon that your class can use but you are not proficient with, you get a penalty when using it. You know, that's it's definitely more realistic than the BX approach. It's more bookkeeping. And what I found happen a lot of times is characters or players, savvy players would choose, they'd always choose the weapons to be proficient in that were most likely to come up as magic items. So so every fighter chose longsword because I think in AD&D 70% of the magic swords you found were longswords and only like 1% of them were two-handed swords. Uh, and you were much more likely to find a sword than an axe or, heaven forbid, you find a, a magic pole arm or something. So that would really kind of steer people into what choices they made. Um, so in general, I mean, yeah, if you want more realistic things, 
Now that's cool, but um, I prefer the just kind of the carte blanche BX approach and not worrying about these things. How Gavin approaches it is he divides the character classes into three categories. Marshal, those who gain Thacko improvements every three levels. These are your fighters, your knights, your paladins, and your demi-human classes that are kind of like a fighter. So like your halfling, your dwarf, semi-martial gain an improvement to Thack over four levels. So these are your thief types, your cleric types, and non-martial gain an improvement to Thack over five levels. So magic user, illusionist, and I think gnome. So for initial weapon proficiencies, martial characters are proficient with four at first level, semi-martial with three, and non-martial with one. And you gain a weapon proficiency every time the character's Thacko and saving throw uh, values improve. You gain a weapon proficiency, a proficiency with a new weapon. And non-proficient attacks, martial characters suffer a minus two penalty, semi-martial a minus three penalty, non-martial a minus five penalty. You know, if I was going to use this, it would be interesting instead to say that you just got like plus one to hit with anything you were proficient with. And those that you weren't proficient with, you didn't get a penalty. I think I'd probably be on board with uh, with that more than uh, than the penalty to hit. Because... There's already enough swing and miss in D&D, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, we've all been in those combats where everyone's rolling poorly or the, everyone's just wearing plate mail or something and no one's hitting anything and it's just kind of ugh, a drudgery. So I don't want really any rule that's contributing to the swing and miss in combat. Uh, he also has the idea of weapon specialization, that martial characters can optionally um, specialize in a single specific type of weapon. This requires dedicating two weapon proficiency slots to a single weapon type. Um, and then they gain um, plus one to hit and damage with their specialized weapon. If I was going to use that, I think I'd probably throw that to the uh, that bone to the fighter and say only the fight human fighter could get that. So there you have it. Those are the advanced fantasy character options. And next up, I'll talk a little bit about what I'd use out of this stuff in my campaign. So, for my Planet Eras game, the things I would add from the advanced fantasy options to a regular old BX, I'd add all the classes, with the exception of Bard, the Underdark, Demi-Humans, the Drow, Durgar, Sferf, Neblin, the Gnome, and the Knight. I think those are the classes I would takeaway. Now, if someone really wanted to play a bard or a knight, I'd probably just say, fine, go ahead. But the underdark characters and the gnome just don't really fit. They're not 
I think, in the Planet Eris book, so I probably wouldn't use them. And honestly, in almost any, as I've outlined, in almost any D&D-type game, I wouldn't, unless it was geared towards the underground, I wouldn't allow the, the Drow Durgar or Sverf Neblin. I think they're, they're two alien to surface-dwelling adventures. I'd, I'd use the poison rules for the advanced the other advanced rules. I would not use the separate uh, demi-human species and class where you're choosing to be an elven fighter or a, a dwarf cleric or anything like that. You're just a I prefer the the race as class as we know it in BX. That's the approach I like and I think that's what I'd always do if I were playing a BX variant. Uh, as far as the other advanced optional rules, I would definitely, I think I'd probably use all of them. I'd use the limits on turning the undead, definitely the staves for magic users, all the combat options, attacking with two weapons, charging, pairing, splash weapon, yeah, all that stuff. The limits on uh, returning from death through raised dead, Definitely, definitely, definitely the spell book and learning spells, adding spells. Multi-classes, nope, because I'm not separating race and class. I would use secondary skills, and I'd probably say, nope, I'm not using weapon proficiencies or the weapon specialization stuff. Unless I did it like I outlined where it was, if you're proficient, you were plus one to hit. Um, and not if you're not proficient, you get penalties to hit. So that's what I'd do. If I, you know, if I were running, if I were a person that just liked BX the way it was, but I maybe wanted to add a little pizzazz to the game, I'd probably, the the, the classes I'd most be, be likely to add would be the half-elf, the half-orc, maybe the gnome, but definitely the half-elf and half-orc, and I'd add the other spellcasters, because I think... The spellcasting classes are the ones that make the most sense to add. Adding different fighter variants and different thief variants, I don't think is all that interesting. But adding more spells to the game and more approaches to spellcasting, I think, is interesting. So I would definitely add the Illusionist and the Druid as well. Um, and, mo you know, I'd probably add all the other stuff too. I would definitely add the, the clarifications on turning undead. Uh, and use that, and I definitely add the the uh, the spell books and and learning spells and having more spell options for magic users, um, and I definitely add the the limits on returning from death. I'd probably add the combat options as well, the you know the charging and um, parrying and all that business, and uh, using staves for magic users as well. So, yeah, I think there's a lot here that could improve, that could either be used to add a, little, a few more options to your current OSE classic fantasy game, or if you wanted to use the majority of this and really capture more of an AD&D feel for your BX game or your old school uh, Essentials classic fantasy game, I think this, yeah, is a really good framework. So that's it for my <laughs> very long-winded approach to this little booklet, the character 
booklet from Old School Essentials Advanced Fantasy from Gavin Norman of Necrotic Gnome Games. Um, I'll probably still do, if people are interested, uh, a look at the the Druid and Illusion of Spells, the monsters and the treasures. It will not be uh, nearly as long as the <laughs> this approach to characters has been. So, uh, thanks for listening to my blabber. Thanks to Jason and Daniel for your calls. And until I talk to you again, don't go down in a heap.